The following program features language some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. I've been fortunate enough to have, yeah, you know, I've played Leeds Festival, Reading Festival, supported Gold Looking Chain, Ice Cube, whoever. Um, so I got recommended to their management and I got this phone call, which was quite surreal, saying, yeah, this is uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce's tour management. Um, would you like to come and do the support act? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Of course. You know, I was like, is this, is this an actual conversation? <laughs> is this real? Right. Right. <laughs> um, is this real? Just... Yeah. And I, in, in my mind, I was like, okay, this is, this is too good. This is like, this is, it, I was trying to think what is a bigger hip hop show than this? This is like the biggest, I think, it, yeah, it's the biggest hip hop tour of all time. listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales, a podcast exploring the trails and untold tales of Welsh hip hop. My name is Luke Bailey and I'm a podcaster, best known for the Fly Fidelity podcast, and I'm talking to key players about the notable and nuanced evolution of Welsh hip hop history. Welcome to the program. This episode, a conversation with DMC finalist DJ Killer Tomato. We discuss his journey as DJ from house parties and clubs to touring with Goldie Luck and Chain and supporting Jay-Z and Beyonce at the Principality Stadium. All of this and so much more on this episode. Tom Clugston, a.k.a. DJ Killer Tom. Um, I've been DJing probably for about 25 years now. And I think... A good entry point for me was probably watching DMC battles, um, listening to like the Scratch Perverts or Invisible Scratch Pickles, and just kind of being fascinated by the sound of, of scratching. And I know a lot of other Scratch DJs have this experience, but it's like, how do you make that noise? How can I replicate that sound? Um, yeah, I want to do that, you know. Um, yeah, so kind of being inspired, just listen to hip hop records, essentially, you know, DJ premiere records. The choruses always had hooks that were cut up. Um, and that was that was intriguing to me as an individual. You know, it, it was musically different. Um, maybe the sound of the future, perhaps I hadn't heard before. So, yeah, that that kind of sparked my interest and took me down the rabbit hole of, you know, buying mm. some turntables. Um, and then, yeah, on from there, really. So what year was this and where were you living? So this was when I was 16, I lived in Winchester. Um, and like a lot of when you're when you're a kid, you just want to listen to music that is, I suppose, um, anti-establishment or what you're not meant to listen to. Right. So hip hop is the personification right. of that. It's got that punk rock element. Right. Um, you know, 
yeah and it just blew my mind like the kind of the slang used in hip-hop records trying to decipher you know what people like Raekwon were saying um that kind of New York street slang but then also how the music was made and that essentially comes from the DJ right because in hip-hop culture mm. the DJ I would say is, is the foundation you know Cool Herc um Grandmaster Flash you know putting two records together to uh keep the breakbeats going you know for b-boy battles dj battles mc battles um and yeah i wanted to somehow be a part of that so at age 16 i think i saved up all the money i ever had and bought the worst set of turntables obviously belt drives <laughs> and maybe four records and i think i only had one turntable at the start because i could only afford one and my only option was to listen to one record or to scratch so i just tried to work out how to do scratching um so in today's day and age you can go on the internet and you can learn literally anything from youtube but back then it was there were there were no tutorials there was nothing so um yeah it was just listening to mixtapes um getting your hands on maybe the dmc battle videos vhs's and watching those, seeing how people like the Scratch Perverts, Prime Cuts uh, did things. Uh, yeah, and, and trying to just copy and mimic um, all the different styles and then not biting too hard, but eventually you kind of grow a style of your own. And yeah, hopefully that takes you on the journey. So like many people who discovered hip-hop in the 90s, you became more aware of scratching. And from what I understand, you end up finding your origin scratching on your parents' record deck. Yeah, I had um, had one Michael Jackson. I had Mike, Michael Jackson Bad is the greatest um, scratch battle record, kind of unintentional battle record, because it's just full of all these kind of vocal, you know, uh, noises, you know, hooks and stuff. And they sound awesome cut up. So I had that and some old school, I don't know, like a bush uh, hi-fi <laughs> and just, I would just, it's probably the same story for a lot of guys, but just, yeah, yeah. just, just mess around and just tear up your parents' record collection. Um, just, you know, push a record backward and forward, see what happens, see what sounds you can make. Um, yeah. So that, that, that would have been the initial, the initial uh, interest and having like a, a cassette player on there as well so you could press record and uh, listen back to what you've done or the mess you've made um, and the records you destroyed yeah so uh, that that was <laughs> that was my mum probably isn't too happy about that at the time but um, I think the first yeah the first album I ever bought was was bad and that that was um, I'm going on a tangent here now but that that was as a piece of music that also was hugely influential to me mm. as, as a kid, like because it, it's got that kind of street um, element to it. You know, it's got elements of hip hop in there and like hip hop culture. Um, so yeah, that that was. I, I didn't realize like music could sound, you know, electronic drums, uh, program drums, stuff like that. I didn't realize things could sound like that. Um, so putting that onto my mum's turntable and then pushing that backwards and forwards and seeing what noises I could make and trying to record like a, a, a my version of a mixtape, I suppose, which wasn't very good. Yeah, so that was, um, 
I suppose that was the, the genesis. Yeah, that was the that, mm. that was the pivotal starting point. Where I grew up in Winchester, there was there wasn't much hip hop. I put on the only hip hop night in my local town, which was amazing. Um, you know, it was great fun. Uh, coming to Cardiff though for university, kind of fresh faced, um, you know, wide eyed. Uh, there were pivotal hip hop nights going all the time. So you had enthusiasm. Uh, obviously, Captain's Night and the Toucan, um, and then just an array of amazing 90s hip hop artists who would just come through all the time. You know, Keris One would play, Grandmaster Flash would play. Um, also, local artists, though, Optimus Prime, Joel, and Stag were a huge influence. Uh, I would say they were the first guys who invited me around and they they basically taught me how to scratch properly uh they taught me how to kind of count bars how to how to create phrases how to build phrases um and they to me they were just like they were gods they're amazing <laughs> um they were so good and I, I just i was in awe being invited around to hang out in their studio and just just cut and scratch up for like you know three four hours at a time Hi, it's Monkey here from Optimus Prime, um, aka El Mono is what I go by these days. And the first time I met Killer Tomato was at Elliot's house, who's like Dr. Wretch from Dead Residents. And um, and he had just like uh, got into town. Um, I think he was studying in Cardiff. And, um, and we were just like chatting and he was like, oh, you DJ? Like Elliot was like, oh, yeah, this guy DJs as well. And uh, so he just like showed me a couple of things on the decks and I was like, whoa, you know, really sort of like taken away by like how good he was and stuff. And um, and yeah, that's how we first met. And we just like link up, you know, like that was just the thing back then. We would like if somebody was a DJ, somebody was scratching, you know, we would always want to link up with them. There was no kind of like, um, you know, kind of like standoffishness or anything like that. It was like really kind of like. You know, we want to hang out and uh, it's probably like, you know, just like steal skills off each other, but in like a really healthy kind of way, you know. So, um, you know, and Killer Tomato had lots of skills and like a whole different like way of scratching to us. So, um, so yeah, it was really nice to link up with him and hang out. And, uh, you know, uh, we always used to link up a lot as we sort of got older. And um, yeah, he's just like a yeah, real kind of like inspirational dude. Uh, so th those guys were a huge influence. Um, and then on the flip side of the scratching thing, obviously people like DJ Moneyshot I would go and see. And again, that would blow my mind because he was one guy who was like chopping up records, mixing together stuff that uh, would, I suppose people call it open format. Um, so mixing, you know, funk, soul, disco, hip hop, all the breaks in a kind of turntablist style, but in an approachable way, right? That, you know, a dance floor could appreciate. And that was kind of like the other end of the spectrum for me. So I was like, right, here's a guy who is rocking a dance floor with his turntable skills. And then over the other side, you've got like uh, Monkey and Stag who are creating music just from scratching. So that 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 that's too two um yeah two two people to two groups of people who had huge i'd say huge influence on me kind of 
as I kind of came to Cardiff as quite a young, you know, I hadn't done anything really. Um, right. But yeah, they're very welcoming and just being included in a scene was that, that was one thing that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it validating. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just pe- people were very um, generous with their time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very friendly and just, just welcoming. So as an outsider to the scene as well, to be welcomed into that was, was quite, quite humbling. At the time, I, I, I kind of look at it in, it might sound like clinical, but in like, it's almost like a business kind of perspective. Like, how can I be successful at DJing? So I, I looked at the routes that people would take to become known. And back then, if you're an MC, it was battling. If you were, you know, a break dancer, it was battling. Um, and as a, as a DJ, it was battling. So I kind of geared myself up looking at like the DMC championships, looking at all those guys. And at the time you could use the DMCs, you know, the DMC world champion or UK champion, they would go on to great things and have, you know, shows, you'd have a rep, right? Mm. So I just started entering uh, local DJ battles, DJ battles in the Toucan, uh, university DJ battles. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I won some, I lost some, uh, but just getting up on stage super vulnerable really because you're you're very exposed um you know if a needle skips what have you it's over but that going through that um rite of passage putting yourself out there really helped help me grow i'd say as a dj um so yeah the the arc was kind of going through the dj battle scene um, I didn't. I, I never thought I'd be able to go to like the UK DMC finals or anything like that. Uh, but somehow, I suppose just endless practice. You know, sitting, sitting in a room for like six hours a day. You know, practicing cuts, uh, trying to work out what other people are doing and create your own style. Um, yeah. So essentially, that kind of led me down that road to trying. You know win dmc battles as many as i could really um whatever i could enter and try and be successful at so however there, there's like a there's a realization when you kind of get you know say say you get to the dmc finals uk finals welsh dmc finals whatever mm. um you start to realize that people don't always want to hear a guy on the deck scratching for like six minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, you've got to be able to rock a crowd. Right. Uh, so that's where I started looking to other people in the scene, like, like your kind of money shots. Um, Paul B is a, he's a good one. Um, and just seeing how, okay, how can I take this battle thing and incorporate it into something that is going to give me more longevity? I, I wouldn't say I was confident going into DJ battles at all. Um, super nervous. Um, but you have to put on the front that you're not afraid. You know, you have to be ready for war, I suppose. Because <laughs> if people sense weakness in you, you know, the crowd can f- feel the energy and you want the crowd on your side. So if you made mistakes, you kind of, you have to kind of pretend that it's just part of the routine. You know, if you do a beat juggle and you miss a 
a couple of bars or the needle skips. You just have to keep keep going. So many lessons were learnt, I would say, from those experiences. Um, but then, I, I would say, even to this day, I, I still I'm, I'm very confident in what I do. But if I don't have that little bit of like nerves of right, I've got to switch it on. I've got to perform now. There's something wrong. So I would never say that I'd get complacent even now. Um, yeah. So I, I couldn't say that there was a pivotal point where I said, right, I'm super confident at this. I'm amazing at this. Right. Um, like the more you do, the kind of the bigger the gigs get, it, you've still got to have that little bit of like nervous energy to drive you that you feed off of that. So you're talking about an energy with being a student almost. Yeah, totally. You're, you're learning all the time. So as, as much as I may, you know, come across like confident and maybe arrogant at times, um, that's all part of the kind of the front. The, the showmanship. Of, of, yeah. Yeah. The showmanship of, of being on stage or being a battle DJ or, you know, doing the, the Red Bull battles, whichever one it is. Um, yeah. But then you have to give yourself the wins as well, which I'm not the best at. So when you have successes, you have to reward yourself and say, yeah, I did well there. Um, mm. Otherwise, you, you can't live in like a perpetual state of, you know, nervousness. You have to say, yeah, that was a good one. Let's, let's do the next thing. So you kind of, the more you put out into the ether as a DJ or whatever you do, you kind of get feedback. So if you do something that's good, then you think, okay, I'm on the right path. So it, it's a weird kind of, ethereal thing to say but like the universe kind of like pushes you in the right direction mm. so like say you, you did a dj battle and you got second place right um or you know some some guy gave you props um you know someone you respect you know you're on the right path but it's if, if it was terrible from the beginning and an awful experience then i i, I don't think i would have kept doing it Going back to the beginning, you starting off and of course doing these shows pre-battle mode. Where were you buying your records and building your arsenal? That's a really, really good question. Um, when I lived in the south of England, I, I'd go down to record fairs in places like Southampton, Portsmouth, and there was a real culture of digging. It was really exciting. So you you get on a train and you'd be the first in the, you know, down there. So you'd be first in the queue. So you could get in there and get all the fresh tunes and stuff that people didn't have. Um, so record fairs, uh, good record stores in different, you know, if you go to a different city, if you go to London, there, you know, tons of amazing record stores up there that would have tunes that you couldn't find, you know, uh, finding, a, you know, really good 90s hip hop. That was, that was hard to do. Um, it, this was like before anything was online so you really had to put the work in and again it's, it's i think it's another rite of passage so like you've got the kind of the scratch thing you know you've done the battles you've done the work again with buying the music and buying the tunes you had to do the legwork it's not like today you can just go online type in okay i want i don't know 36 chambers by wu-tang boom ebay done um yeah you had to go out and find find records so knowing where the hot spots were knowing kind of which sellers at which record fairs you know had the best tunes getting there first 
that gave you an edge against your other DJs. You might be the only guy in your town or city, you know, with a copy of, and I will say Juicy by Biggie or whatever. Um, but yeah, so it was, that was also part of the fun. Uh, that little road of discovery, you know, because you never know what you'll find at record stores, record fairs. Yeah, it's a, um, it was, it was hard work and it was expensive. Records are not cheap. Um, and, you know, if, if you had the money, you could perhaps import stuff from like the United States and whatnot. Um, yeah, so that was the bulk of my collection came from just doing the legwork, going digging in the, in the traditional sense. Uh, I'd, I'd say on top of that as well, it's it's something that is missing probably from today's culture, having that being the only guy who had maybe like a you know, the new Rodney P record or or whatever, you know, the tune that would get people going in the clubs. Subsequently as well, I think this is a bit of a tangent from the main question, but being like the DJ used to be the purveyor of music. Mm. Uh, so you go to a club to see a DJ because you know that they'd have the best tunes or the new tunes. Whereas now everybody's got the entire world of music on their iPhone. So they don't need to be introduced to new music, which is a, you know, there is, there's positives and negatives to both. Um, I'm not saying that like, you know, Spotify is terrible or what have you, but it's just a cultural shift. And um, I, I feel quite privileged to have grown up through that, gone through those ranks of having to find records. You mentioned the words road to discovery within that process and you just spoke to that road being very much competitive. How much was that road based on secrecy for yourself as a DJ back then in those early days? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So they're, they're, you always get these these uh like old old DJs tales of DJs like putting stickers on their dub plates or what have you. So yeah when you're playing a record, another DJ doesn't look over and see what you're playing. Um, but I, I've, you know, other DJs were very protective over, you know, which records they had or where they found their records or which record shop um, they, they purchased their records from. You know, if it was Catapult Records in Cardiff or, um, you know, local record fair or if someone had found, you know, a collection of records in a charity shop, but yeah, it was, there There always seems to be, it might be a hip hop thing, that hip hop is quite a competitive art form that like you want to be better than your other DJ or you want to be a better MC than the next man. Um, yeah, so having, I'm trying to think now, having the best or the freshest tunes, I, I think that translates to other genres of music as well. But hip hop has definitely got a competitive element just because of the the way it was formed through, you know, battles, breakdance battles, graffiti battles, DJ battles. Um, but not not to say that that it wasn't in like a, you know, it's a friendly rivalry. It's not not like, you know, first one into the record store. Right? I'm pushing pushing people away from the good records. <laughs> um, yeah. But again, it's like, you know, 
it's you had to be super um economical with with what you know you've, you've got 100 quid to spend on records so what are you going to buy it's like six to seven maybe ten pounds a tune so you have to be really you have to take a punt on what's going to work you know can i make use of the a side the b side should i get an lp where i can play all the tunes or i'm going to get one song out of this so there's a there's kind of a layer of like decision making when buying your records to kind of stay ahead of like the next dj and then is the fact that you might possibly buy doubles that same day as well which would limit your budget as well right yeah so that's that's a very very another very good point that if you if you are a battle dj you need you need two of each record if you're doing beat juggles or if you want you know to scratch an acapella over an instrumental so you may have to yeah just sacrifice buying sometimes four copies of the record as well because you'd have two to practice on and because you know when you spin a record backwards and forwards you get cuburn so you get that kind of that hissy noise over a certain part of the record so come mm. dj battle time you want two fresh copies so that your routine sounds crisp and clean so yeah i've bought four copies of one record to try uh to build routines um funnily enough you'd, you'd always find that a lot of the top turntablists all their routines would be made of what i'd call hmv um four for 20 quids so <laughs> <laughs> hmv would have the, the more commercial hip-hop records would always be on offer in hmv so it would be okay what what can i make out of this like a shanty tune or this jar rule tune can i build a routine from this because i know i can come back here and buy another couple of copies for cheap um if you're buying rare records um trying to think of something i know a far side 12 inch would be quite expensive back then or you know you wouldn't want to tear that up and destroy it would you so yeah that there was a decision making process within that um to buy records that you could use for battling that you could also buy again that weren't too expensive but also kind of were not too rubbish because if, if you you know you're not gonna get props if you're if you're i don't know juggling a madonna record or something but but that might be quite cool <laughs> so yeah that's um it's an expensive hobby put it that way we're talking about layers, aren't we? There's, there's really layers to this process and decision-making you're talking about. Yeah, plenty, plenty of, of decisions. I'm, and maybe in hindsight, I, I I look back at it now, yeah, from a critical mindset and think, yeah, that, that's what I was doing. And at the time, I was just, I was involved in it. So I was like, right, I just need to have these records or... Yeah. Um, yeah, but also as well, it's like nowadays you can buy, you know, records that are pressed for beat juggling and stuff like that sometimes you would buy two copies of a record and the only way you can test if it's good at beat juggling is buying two and beat juggling it and creating a routine and sometimes you have two of one record a great record you know your far side record might be lovely to listen to but right. you can't build a routine from it it just doesn't work so right yeah it's it's um it's an expensive it's expensive way to uh to dj um you talked about owning 
about four records in the earliest days. Mm. As your DJing progresses, who would have been some of those go-to artists, those trusted artists that you would have in your collection as a given every month? Who are those artists that you were buying their records without fail? Um, wow, that's a great question. So I think there's a miss, the first Mr. Scruff album, Keep It Unreal, I think is the one. That was a great album to have as a as a DJ just playing, you know, in clubs and stuff because it had mm. a couple of hip hop tracks on there, had a tune with Roots Maneuver, and then it had some more up tempo stuff as well that was credible, like kind of more house tempo. So from one record you could you could appease multi multitudes of people. Um at the start I was buying a lot of UK hip hop. Um, which looking back probably wasn't as dance floor friendly as I thought it was, but I loved it. So the skits album is probably one that a lot of people talk about because every tune on there was a banger. Uh, Countryman, classic. Um, yeah, absolute classic. Um, you can't put foot wrong with that album. But again, it's it's an album that you you buy once and you can get a lot of use out of it. Illmatic is another one where you know you can get a lot of play out of that. Um, so yeah, it was just. Uh, trying to think of other artists and then funk records as well uh, so you, you get like good funk compilations that were coming out at the time because the, the culture of um, sampling and like throwback to the original samples was big so you could you could buy very good albums with, with an assortment of artists on there you know that have got all the kind of big, big kind of hip hop breaks uh, break beats and stuff like that so then you've got stuff that you can use for like b-boy battles uh dj battles and also you can play them in just normal clubs because you know funk and disco works very well so yeah i think i couldn't i couldn't pinpoint like four artists that i'd go back to mm. but at the start kind of yeah uk hip-hop i was buying a lot of uk hip-hop um what were you mark buying blade i used to buy nice mark being blade skinny man um roots maneuver jest obviously task force um for life cypher all the, all the stuff for the heads you know yeah yeah um wicked it's amazing to me to, to look back and think there was a time when i could go into clubs on a weekly basis with with those kind of tunes and just just you know rock a crowd that 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 is sadly missed. <laughs> Speaking of rocking crowds, I can't think yeah. of any other definitive time in Cardiff that can eclipse that era of higher learning, which at that moment yes. was the epicenter of hip hop, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I owe a lot to um, higher learning because those were my first battles that, you know, the higher learning MC battle, uh, DJ battle, going up against people like Keltec. That was amazing. Um, yeah, so, and then, you know, Captain and Dregs, they're, they're bringing in some some amazing artists, you know, real history of hip-hop kind of people. High Learning was amazing. So, obviously, Rough Styles, Captain and Dregs kind of running the night. It, it was one of those things where in Cardiff you'd have, on some nights, you know, two major hip-hop events on at the same night. You'd have something in Welsh Club, maybe KRS-One, then you'd have like Grandmaster Flash on at Higher Learning. So you're totally spoiled for choice. 
and yeah, I think the venue, the Toucan Club, was a big part to play because it just it was it was a great venue, and those guys really invested. Captain Dregs and Rough Styles super invested in the culture, you know, mm. um, putting on you know battles, you know, DJ battles, MC battles, um, and then bringing down, yeah, just. I saw Ty there. I saw Jest. I think I saw Task Force. I, 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 the list is is too long for me to remember, but yeah, super pivotal place, and also a place to network and meet people, right? So, meet like Money Shot, DJ Spud, um, obviously the Optimus Prime boys, uh, Second Son. Um, I, I think I even met the GLC boys there. You know, in the kind of early years before I knew they were the GLC boys. So. Yeah, it was a community kind of hub as well as being somewhere to be kind of entertained. And yeah, I have to take my hat off to those guys for really, yeah, they they put their heart and soul into it. Um, they definitely. did. They did. Even the flyers, even the flyers back then were emblematic of that time and energy. Yeah, totally. Um, looking back, I think like like Rough Stars as well had had a super. I'm sure you've spoken to him, but he had a passion hip hop because he was writing hip hop connection at the time. That's right. He had like um the tale, tales from the crypt or some something he had the 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 column at the, the back of the magazine that I always That's used it. to love to read. And his like unadulterated opinion on hip hop, like kind of non PC, um just his his raw thoughts. And um that energy was always brought through at high learning I thought. Um yeah it was a driving force. So yeah a lot of respect but also, you know, they put on things like all the kind of Rough Styles World Record attempt, all those kind of events as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a golden age, man. It's, it's It really it's, is. It was the first time missed. I saw you. <laughs> yes. There we yeah. go. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a great place to network and just meet other DJs or people doing the same things. Um, but also it, it brought people from other parts of Wales as well. Like, you know, all the guys from Swansea, um, Mudmouth, um, Ralph Ripshit. Um, yeah, so you'd have other MCs from different parts of Wales come, or DJs from different parts of Wales, which I've always found really interesting. Yeah, it became um, this intersection, didn't it, for so many places across the UK, and it just opened up, like you say, this hub of talent and people meeting each other. Yeah, totally. Um, who did I... Who did I meet that was super pivotal? I'm trying to think now. Um, I, I think, yeah, meeting, like, obviously, because I did a lot of stuff with Second Son, um, obviously, he's Cardiff-based, but meeting Skinny Man for the first time, that was pretty cool. Um, and again, just, just people like Jess, at the, the, the peak of his, like, High Plains Drifter kind of stuff, to me... You know, as an upcoming DJ, that was, it was amazing to see people like that face to face. Probably you probably have the same experience, but oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's so. just awesome, absolutely awesome. So there's a moment around that time we're talking about where everything comes full circle for yourself when you become a DJ for Humrock the Gritty and SFDB Records. How does that come about? So at the time, Gritty Derek uh, was he was the kind of high learning MC battle champ. Right. And he was working with Second Son. Um 
and I was in a similar position. I, I think I just won their like DJ battle, um, and Gritty was looking for a DJ to, to tour with, you know, or someone to, you know, if he if he gets shows to go out with him and play the instrumentals, do the cuts and the choruses. So uh, he's got a live show. So we linked up, um, started doing uh, scratches for a couple of second sons tunes um yeah and ultimately you go on to you know work with other artists on his roster on the sfdb label so working with black tricks um clarity comrade watts um man his label was pretty deep at the time um he did tunes with blade as well so there's the connection with blade um defexo deficits and also he was working with, um, who is it now? He was super successful. You'll know. I can't think of his name. <laughs> Two hours later. Lewis Parker. Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, I to totally forgot Lewis Parker. Working with, with Gritty was, was amazing because, you know, we, we come from very different backgrounds, but it was very welcoming, you know, I was just like young, <laughs> skinny little kid who was like a scratch DJ. And then you got this like, literally like this punchline rapper, you know, his style was super hard, uncompromising. And I was quite humbled to be working with him and to essentially, yeah, go out on tour with him. Um, so that was, yeah, that, that was a, that was a confidence boost. I'd say that was a, uh, that was a pivotal moment. And being around a recording studio, seeing Leon Second Son working, you know, with all these people who I idolize, you know, like he did a tune with Jess, Lewis Parker, uh, Task Force, did a tune with God Looking Chain. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty special. Amazing. Take me into that moment. Is there a story that off top of your head you think encapsulates that bond and moment in time? Wow, that's uh, that's a deep question. So, I'm trying to think of like the early, early gigs we me and me and Humarak did. So, this is the time where like the Goldie Looking Chain guys are taking off. So, do you want me to explain the story of how we kind of started doing? Please. Those? Yeah. 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 Okay. Please. So, I don't I don't want to jump too far into like the future and ruin your chronological timeline. <laughs> <laughs> the chronology will be wrecked by my rambling. So, um, so basically, yeah, me, me and Derek hadn't spent much time together, and we got this opportunity to open a gold looking chain gig. So at the time, the GLC were massive. They like charted, I think, number two or three in the charts, and were touring the entire country at like big, big venues. And through Leon's connection, because Leon knew all the Gold Looking Chain boys, there was an opening at the Cardiff show. Do you want to come and support? And Derek Grissy had his uh, single kind of in the bag, ready to kind of take out on the road, so to speak. So it was like a perfect opportunity for him to start doing all his material that was new. And yeah, we basically just 
got a last minute call to do the Cardiff set to warm up for Gold Look and Chain. Um, we had to get, I, I've got them, I can see them now in my record collection actually, my coveted SFDB um, limited, they're the only ones, dub plates of all the instrumentals produced by by Second Son and I think one's produced by uh, Lewis Parker and Jess. But yeah, we had nice. these acetate dubs cut because, you know, CDJs were not really a thing and we had to have some instrumentals for them to rap over. So uh, we got those cut in a hurry and then took my Technics turntables uh, to Cardiff Union and we did the show. Um, yeah, so I think we had maybe, well, Derek had maybe four or five, maybe six tunes. So we did a 20-minute set. I did a bit of scratching to kind of fill it out. But yeah, that that was the genesis of kind of that touring moment. And off the back of that, we got offered, okay, we're doing Swansea next. You want to come and do Swansea? The guy, I think John the White Rapper, do you remember him? Vaguely, very vaguely. Yeah, Where so, was he so from? He, so, so he was signed to, I think he was signed to the same label as Gold Look and Chain. Right. But then he got dropped for some reason. Maybe, I, I have no idea. I'm not going to say bad things about John the White Rapper. but um, <laughs> <laughs> So there, there, there was a gap. There was an opening for us. And right. we did Cardiff. We did Swansea. And I think there was maybe Carmarthen, perhaps. So after that, I just, I said to kind of Second Son and Gritty, let let's let's do the whole tour let's see if we can do the whole tour so mm. there was a moment where i got on the phone to the manager of gold looking chain proper big dog and i just said hey this is a this is dj killer tom you have no idea who i am but we've been supporting the last three gigs can we do the whole tour please <laughs> and he just said yes and at that moment in time that was a bit of a punt um, and going back to the kind of confidence thing, that was that was probably one of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life, just phoning up, you know, manager of, of a charting band and asking if I can go on their UK tour, uh, you know, with a rapper. So, yeah, he said yes, and <laughs> we ended up doing the whole tour. And I was in my second year of uni at the time, and I had to, like, ditch uni and be like, right, see you later, guys. I'm going on tour. So, yeah, that was... That was a pivotal moment. So subsequently, me, me and Derek just we we built a set, and the more shows we did, the tighter it got. Um, it was a learning experience for me because I'd never worked with a rapper before, and DJing for a rapper is very different to DJing for a club. You know, for the people. Um, what were those biggest differences initially for you? Navigating those differences between being a DJ at the club and being this rapper's DJ now. Completely different relationship and energy, like you say. Yeah. So, how are you navigating that? So, yeah, go, going from I suppose it's being being versatile enough to go from being a scratch DJ where the it's all about you and your kind of bravado and trying to show off essentially and win to like the next step of that is playing in clubs and entertaining people and then right the next step is working with Humarak and you are you are kind of playing you're, you're keeping everything in check so he can can perform so you're not you're not like the kind of showcase he is the he is the main act you are there to kind of give him space to breathe so in between the choruses provide cuts so 
anyone out there who's a rapper will know that if you just keep rapping and rapping, rapping, you, you need to have breaks if you're the only guy on stage. Um, yeah, and also being like the, the first guy you walk onto stage, you know, you have to engage the crowd a little bit so when he comes out with a mic that there's something, you know, some kind of an atmosphere. But understanding that it's not just about you, it's a team. And trying not to make any mistakes as well because we were playing on these acetate vinyls and, you know, if the needle skipped, then he is his flow is off. Um, so that was also a total nightmare <laughs> trying to navigate that. But yeah, the transition into, um, I suppose it's more of like a kind of, you're managing the stage and the environment and the music for him so he can perform and get the best mm. out of his performance, right? Mm. And there's a value in that. There's a value that isn't really understood and respected today. Yeah, it's, it's been it's a, a, being able to not let your ego get in the way because a lot of people they get on stage and they're just like it's me 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 it's all about me it's like no you're 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 doing a job now um you know you've, you've got to make it make the transition make the show happen it's a very important role because you know without the music and without the dj there's no show um and it's also you know mistakes would be made so it's learning how to deal with that quickly i, I remember you know you're, you're in front of a, a crowd of people who want to see gold looking chain and they're like, who's this kid? And people just throwing bottles of beer at you sometimes. So, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So that didn't happen many times, but having the um, tenacity just to keep going, keep your head down, and yeah, navigate difficult situations. Touring was a huge, it was the first time I kind of traveled places. Um, there was like, you know, four of us like bunged into a small car, just driving around the country. You know, you, you got you got a, a, a nominal fee for doing these gigs, but it was about the exposure and getting out there. So the first time I kind of traveled to places, parts of the country that I'd never go to of my own free will, um, you know, driving up to Scotland, a lot of travel on the motorways, hard touring, that built up a lot of resilience, I'd say. Um, and also playing to crowds that were there to see, like I said, the gold looking chain and not you that taught me lessons in how to kind of stay calm in difficult situations and also please a crowd that is essentially not there for you. Mm. And also going on from that, like the blade tour and the skinny man tour. Um, those, those were amazing, amazing shows. Um, Cause they were, you know, UK hip hop heads there for UK hip hop. Um, it was it was a real privilege to be. Again, I looked up to Blade, um, the Unknown, all those kind of records, and then like the early stuff he's done. You know, Mark Bean Blade album was amazing. Again, Skinny Man, absolute idol, and then to find myself, you know, working alongside these people, that was another humbling experience. Um, and also, you you learned that you know these these guys they are they are people you know, so yeah. not not to be too fanboyish and just just to get along with them as humans, and like resonate with them as people. Yeah, I would say the the Skinny Man tour was the one, like touring with Skinny Man. Open eyes to a lot of things, and um, it was pretty amazing. Um, I have to I have to, I have to give Skinny Man a lot of props for letting myself and and Gritty tour with him and 
be so welcoming, you know, just letting us, they, they drove us around in their car, you know, they, they didn't know us and they'd seen, we'd met on the Gold Looking Chain Tour and DJ Flip, Skinny's manager at the time and DJ was like, right, do you guys want to come and, you know, do our support for our tour? We're like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Amazing. So yeah, I was kind of thrust into this world that I was, I was a fan of all these artists and then suddenly I was, you know, touring with them, hanging out with them, um, supporting them. Yeah. So there, there was, it was a fast learning curve. Yeah, most definitely. Well, circuiting back to GLC and yourself being a fan of these artists we're talking about, a lot of people at that point in time, and now especially, they're not fans of GLC for whatever reasons. Some people are, some people aren't. What do you think are some of those biggest misconceptions that people have of GLC? Great question. Um, I've I've answered this question a lot because hip-hop has this, for good or for worse, this thing about keeping it real or, you know, hip-hop has to be a certain way and if people like it or not like gold looking chain are the most successful rap act out of out of wales um and at every given point i remember being with with maggot in london and some people were giving would like trolling him saying oh you know glc are rubbish etc you know they, they've done nothing for hip-hop and i i spoke to these guys and i was like gold looking chain at every point have taken local artists and uk hip-hop artists on tour with them so you know up with the rising tide everyone kind of comes up so jest went on tour with uh, gold looking chain blade went on tour with gold looking chain skinny man went on tour with gold looking chain killer keller um asteroid boys myself and gritty black tricks uh there's probably a whole host of others that i haven't even included but the support slots were always mm filled by uk hip-hop artists um and the guys were huge fans well still are huge fans of hip-hop uk hip-hop so i think the misconceptions are that they were perhaps um in it for the wrong reasons that are wrong you know huge fans of the art form um I'd say they're very talented at what they do. You know, what what for what Gold Looking Chain is, they're excellent at what they do. And there, there's always in Gold Looking Chain records, if you listen to like the music, the sampling, even the lyrics, you know, that there are nods to kind of classic hip hop records and the culture. So there's always sub meta references to the culture. So I, I wouldn't say it was um, in any way disrespectful or insulting to the culture of hip hop, as some people might say. Um, yeah. Uh, hello everyone, it's uh, Blastmaster KRS1 here coming live from the Bronx. No, it's not, that's a complete lie. It's Eggsy from Goldie Looking Chain, moderately successful pop group, uh, rappers from Newport, and um, just here to say hi and talk to you about some stuff. So, um, Killer Tom, DJ Killer Tom, what a guy. Um, he's he's to us, he's a legend, and to a lot of other people, he's a legend. He's a DMC finalist. Um, you know, he's out there spinning the ones and twos all the time, and, and I've known him for incredible amount of time now um looking back it's hard to remember exactly when i met him but um i know when he first popped up on the scene for anybody who knows tom um he's he's a giant he's a bit like the incredible hulk but he's not green and his trousers aren't hanging off of him but he's got the build of incredible hulk 
Now, very much like his DJing, he's been working on his body for years and years. When I first met him, he was tiny, tiny little boy. Uh, I mean, I'm a very slight man, but uh, he was he was on a par with me. And um, this young lad turned up and he's like, hiya, boys, hi. And uh, we're like, all right, tell me, how's it going? Uh, and, you know, he DJed. And I just remember there was a very, very, very rapid movement from us just recording in a bedroom to suddenly getting signed to a major label and it all going everywhere. And Tom, Tom was just there. I really honestly can't remember where he came from, but he was just there, the right place at the right time. And he just had a really good attitude. He never, I think it's important in, in whatever you do, not to be big headed and, and a dickhead about what you do. And, and Tom wasn't by any means. He's just like, yeah, I, I, I do some DJ and stuff. It's quite good. And it's like, cool. Do you want to do some cuts and scratches? And he's like, yeah, okay. And it was like, yeah, he's he's brilliant, you know. Um, so so we got to know him through there. I remember in the in the early days, he was in uni, um, and he made a fantastic video of him putting a pizza on a set of decks. Still don't know why he did it, but that was a great thing to see. You don't get many DJs, you know, Cutmaster Swift. I don't know if he's ever made a video about putting a pizza on a set of decks, but um, you know, this this was some next level stuff from Tom. He was good. You know, he was just really good at putting pizzas on decks, but also at putting records on decks and, and you know, cuts and scratches. He was brilliant. So he's he's always been there on the scene. And what's great is on, you know, most of our albums, he's going to be the guy that you're hearing cutting stuff up. Um, the mixtapes we've done, you know, the majority of the time, Tom's in there just, just absolutely blitzing it and just making them sound really, really good. So he's he's always been there quietly in the background, just sticking everything together with his with his glue, you know. Um, and when I say sticking everything together with his glue, I'm I'm talking about glue. I'm I'm not talking about bodily fluids. That would be wrong. But you know, he's he's just amazing. He's he's a really good guy. And um, if you get the chance to book him, you know, do it because he will make a party. He will. He just will make a party. You know, a good guy knows what he's doing and um, great look as well. Lovely arms. Massive body, great lad. He once bench pressed me uh, before a festival uh, to get me in the zone for the show. And imagine that one man bench pressing another man backstage at the festival. I think it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, if you if if you have a conversation with Eggsy, like he he knows loads about hip hop. Like Reese from the Gold Looking Chain, all he plays is Ghetto Boys. <laughs> Whenever we go on 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 tour, um, Billy Webb. I remember him having the uh, New Proof Suit album on. On the tour bus, just just blasting that out the chest, new new proof suit, um, and again, just big big fans of UK hip hop and hip hop in general. So, um, I maybe yeah maybe maybe that surprised me, um, but I I don't I don't think there was time for me to be surprised because I was just kind of like in the midst of it. Um, yeah. I just like thrust into it, but but they're all very knowledgeable about music not just hip-hop also all music um you know funk soul disco um yeah so yeah i i, I understand people's criticisms of the gold looking chain but then equally you know if 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 someone does well and pr- tries to bring everyone up with them i, I don't see that as, as a bad bad thing Absolutely. obviously you know it's it, it's it, it is a it's a humorless it's, it's a humorous um act you know there, there's a joke in there uh and sometimes i think maybe hip-hop can be a little bit too serious um so yeah i might, I might maybe crucified for saying that but whatever <laughs> 
I, I'd also say as well, I, I, I never thought like, because obviously the joke is like linguistically, it's, it's very Newport, right? And South, South Walesian. And a lot of the humor is about South Wales. Yeah. And I, I, I'm surprised how that culture, uh, all the jokes about that culture spread across the country because it's such a localized thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But for some reason, I think it was a perfect time as well because you had like super furry animals were massive at the time. So there's a lot of Welsh like music coming out. Um, so there was, yeah, the, a, a big wave, I'd say, of, of what Welsh bands, Welsh acts um, that they kind of fitted nicely into. You're also doing a lot of mixtapes around this time. When you reflect on the impact of those mixtapes you've done in the past, what do you think was the secret sauce that made those tapes unique? Man, that's a great question. So I have to, I have to give my nods. My main inspiration, I listened to DJ Moneyshot and the way he put mixtapes together, uh, taking like acapellas and putting rap acapellas over you know, like a portless head tune or stuff that shouldn't really be done, but it works, right? Almost pre-DJ Yoda, that kind of DJ Yoda cut and paste vibe. Um, so he was a a big influence on me. And it was trying to find, you don't want to do what someone else has done, right? So it was trying to find a little niche for myself. Um, my early mixtapes were a lot of acapellas from... UK hip hop records, trying to place them over different things and trying to cram as much into like an hour as possible. And then, man, I haven't made a mixtape for so long. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> um, then my mixtapes kind of grew out into more um, finding, you know, like samples of the original records, mixing that in with a hip hop track and right. just trying to create something that that's different, fun, and it would maybe catch your ear as a listener so and i think again that that helped my craft as a dj just having to dig quite deep um and make sure as as a piece of listening experience it kind of works so you've got like a start a middle and an end and again that would translate across into like dj sets um but I, i'd also say as well like being a dj in places like buffalo bar alongside like you know jaffa money shot dj spud um paul b you know there's there's loads of great djs and cutting your cloth musically learning taking inspiration from those guys the bar was so the bar i've always said this the bar is so high in cardiff for like the size of the city that you had to be good otherwise you know you, you wouldn't rise to the top so um yeah i i think the the whole kind of mixtape thing it was done as again a thing it's, it's a promo tool right to get your name out there to give someone an example of of you as a dj um it, it's weird to me now in today's era because you can't you can't put mixtapes online anymore because copyright stuff copyright claims so it's quite a nice organic experience getting mm. the cds made and giving people you know handing people a physical cd um yeah so it 
hope hopefully it carves an identity for me as a DJ. Um, and it just made me try new ideas out and cut my cloth in different direction, perhaps. I do recall DJ Yoda had a um, column and hip hop connection where he feature mixtapes, you know, from DJs um, and getting some of my mixes featured in his column that that was that was that was that was a moment where I was like okay I'm doing something good here right I'm I'm doing something that's interesting and people are, are liking um as innovation goes that's a tough one um yeah it's because the, the problem is with the mixtape genre as a dj there's so much you can do, but also so much has been done before. Mm. So trying to find a niche, that that's the trick, finding something that someone hasn't done. Um, and also doing it for the love of it because you enjoy it. Um, but then that probably leads nicely on to like, like the Red Bull freestyle stuff because the style of DJing I kind of, or the style of mixtapes I started doing kind of led away from hip hop. So, it, you know, there's hip hop in there, but I'd maybe mix like on the halftime up to drum and bass back down into like a soul sample. Um, and I would say that would, the mixtapes I started to make there would be the, um, perhaps the blueprint for my kind of DJ style going on from there, uh, being multi-genre, having to learn loads of different genres of music, not just hip hop, not just funk, not soul. Um, just being able to play anything and being able to blend it together, you know, kind of like we said, something, yeah, with a start, middle and an end. So that potentially gave me the, or it put me in good standing to drive my DJing into like a, another place if that's not the most convoluted answer. <laughs> you talked about the bar being so high back then. Mm. What did it mean to be representing Wales in, you mentioned it earlier, the DMC Championship Finals? That was a huge thing for me because as a kid growing up, as we said earlier, watching the DMC videos. So bear in mind, again, I go back to this thing of like pre and post internet. Um, now I can just go online and look at all the best scratch DJs of all time and just watch them all in a couple of hours. But you'd had to wait for the DMCs to have happened, buy the video, watch the video and see like what new styles and techniques, you know, had come out, who'd, who, who'd done, you know, which scratch, which beat juggle, whatever. So I was just in awe that I could get to the UK final as a, you know, just as a DJ, just being being there was um, that that that's like a lifelong dream of mine, and also in in being there, you are on one of the videos, and I never thought I could be on a DMC uh, UK final <laughs> video. Stupid as that sounds, it might it might sound irrelevant to people of today's age, but back when I was you know sixteen, seventeen, that was a uh, that was a seal of approval. That was. That was amazing. So yeah, going to DMC battles. Um, I, I didn't win the UK finals, obviously, but I was I was there. You know, and putting yourself out there, you learn a lot. Um, again, you're you're putting. I seem to have put myself into 
lots of uncomfortable positions so whether it's like the local dj battles or the dmc battles or like you know going on stage before golden chain with with gritty um it's always get into that uncomfortable zone and see see what happens and then you kind of learn and grow from that um so yeah the dmcs were super exciting super stressful (laughs) (laughs) and also i was competing in the dmcs at a time so i'll go into the super technical side briefly if you want please do Um, man yeah so uh dj battle you take your records you know you've got your scratch record your beat juggle records so i was literally doing it from in the old school way of having two copies of we'll say biggie hypnotize i'll juggle that then i'll do a scratch over a mob deep instrumental with some scratch sounds and then on to the next part at this point in time dj's had realized that if you can program your battle set into like one audio file on Ableton, Cubase, or what have you, and get that pressed to a dub plate, you can press multiple dub plates. So you've always got loads of copies of your routine and you don't have to take the needle off of the record. You can just literally, the sounds are lined up and you can go through the sounds that, you know, they're one after the other. So the transitions between sections of the routine are not seem it's not easier but they're they're easier to achieve and that's not to say that the routines themselves are worse there are some amazing dj routines out there but i was competing at the time that this kind of transition across to custom dj battle dub plates was happening and you know it, it it's not a case of me winning or losing but there was a significant difference to the people who had these um yeah custom uh scratch battle records with their routines on and it was it was hard to compete and keep the energy up to a similar standard that these guys had so um it's not a complaint it is what it is um but yeah it was a point in time when the dmc battles were switching over to this new uh way of putting sets together as a someone who grew up in england moving to wales then to to represent Cardiff, Wales, at these um, battles, yeah, that, that's a huge honour, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I felt again humbled, and you know, you know, the culture in Wales is very welcoming. So, I think I spent most of my adult life in Wales now, but at the time when I was doing these battles, I hadn't. So, yeah, it was it was quite an honour to kind of you know carry a torch fly the flag um yeah and also again it's it's you go to london you know where all the kind of big dog djs are and you're like the little guy um you kind of like the underdog so if you can achieve as the underdog that's always a nice uh that's quite a satisfying experience hi there this is cut master swift the 1989 dmc world champion and i'm going to talk about killer tomato a competitor in the DMC championships during the 90s. Um, Killer Tomato came into my radar, like most DJs, through the DMC championships. And it was the time when basically it got very exciting because new techniques were coming into the competition, like the flare scratch, 
which pretty much has redefined how DJs DJ today. Um, it's cute. People like Cubert and those San Francisco guys that are pretty much predominant in that style. And DJ Flair was the DJ that actually got that style from actually copying a cash money scratch, he told me personally. And it just evolved into something else. It, it wasn't it. It was trying to do it and it evolved into something else. And Cubert was like, that's not it. That's something new. So they called it the flare scratch. And this is the one-click flare, I believe, they were doing. But um, Killer Tomato grabbed my attention because he pretty much had the style down. And in, in his own style, his own flow, his own pattern. You know, this is what made DJs exciting like Killer Tomato because they were just different. You know, a different timing and stuff. And uh, yeah, he was... Um, that's how he came on my radar. Very nice guy as well. You know, very cool, very calm. You know, um, yeah. So, and I obviously saw him in the, in a few other competitions as well. I actually, last time I saw him now would have been twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, and that was at the uh, DJ exhibition in um, Birmingham. I think he was working for one of them DJ companies doing a, a set because um, that's that, that's a, what, again how you meet some DJs you always it's bumping into the same people all the time that you can't kind of get a repertoire with them and see where they're coming coming at and where they're from you know and if they've always been innovative and doing something a bit different then they grab your attention and he was one of those guys that did can you remember who is judging man I think uh, the judges at the UK 2010 UK DMC final prime cuts, Tony Vegas of the scratch perverts, Mr. Thing. I think killer Keller was judging wow. Cutmaster Swift. Um, yeah, big names. So all, all again, all the people I kind of looked up to as a DJ growing up and it's like suddenly, right. Okay. They're all sat in front of me now watching me do a scratch routine. This is, this is nerve-wracking, you know. No pressure. Was it challenging mm. not allowing that nervousness to translate into your routine? You've talked about, you know, many of times through this point, being nervous at points. Is that challenging to not let it's that horrendous. translate? <laughs> yeah, to, to the, the art of being nervous but not showing nerves. Right. Because uh, people can just sense the energy. And then if they sense that energy, it's just it's a downward spiral. So you can one one thing i always used to do is like when you perform doing dj battle routines is you need to look up at the crowd a few times you can't just have your head down at the, at the vinyl at the mixer you know you need to engage the crowd so i just pick a spot at the back of the room i'm sure people who do public speaking or you know performing do this all the time but you just pick a spot at the back of the room and that's my fixed spot so i look up and just try and look at that spot so it looks like i'm engaging with them i'm not nervous um yeah so they're, they're they're little little kind of things you could do um but equally you can also go the other way whereby you can engage with the crowd too much and you get too overexcited and that endorphin rush that excitement you just think you're you're amazing can you give you me an example mistakes. of that happening um Yeah, I think I I just I just think like uh, there there have been DJ battles. So I've done I'm trying to think now specifically. 
there's probably a DMC heat in London that I entered and I psyched myself up too much and I went into it too hard and you, you make a mistake and there, there's a sweet spot between for performers I'm sure like you know pianists singers they've all got this of being elevated enough that you're on not too not too flat an energy that you you do a bad job but if you're too hyped you'll just start forgetting what you're doing and just kind of think you're yeah you're not thinking you're just making mistakes right so you can be too cognitive of it um and overthink it, it's it's that you don't want to think too much you don't want to feel too much there's somewhere in the middle right right so yeah so that 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 happened where i got too excited and was like yeah i'm going to be amazing this is going to be great i'm going to smash it and then you you make one mistake and then the whole thing just falls apart so um again it's it's a learning experience so you have yeah. to be out of your comfort zone um and again it's heartbreaking because you know you 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 go to these places, you get six minutes to do your routine and that's it. You can't have another go. <laughs> and you know in your mind that you've done this routine a hundred, you know, 200, 300 times perfectly. And then, you know, you make the one mistake and it's trying to stay on course after you've made a mistake as well. That's also, that's also tricky, but I've, I've got multiple experiences in, in life of kind of doing those kind of things. So, Yeah. Take me into your journey as a DJ and in finding that middle spot between not being stubborn with your own agenda, curatorially, and also acknowledging the crowd and what they want, because it's a balancing act, isn't it? Totally, totally. So as a DJ, I never plan any sets. Every time I've planned, like we'll say a club set, like DJing in a club, what have you, um, you are there to entertain the people who have come to see you. So there have been points whereby when I was younger and I wanted to go, right, I've got all this hip hop in my bag. I want to play you the hardest underground hip hop because you need to hear this music because it's the best. <laughs> um, but you fast, you learn quite quickly that, you know, Shook Ones by Mob Deep is amazing tune and it gets the crowd going, but only in a certain section of like the public are into that. So it's... Um, DJing, I would say, I learned from making mistakes that DJing is essentially the psychology of people in the room and understanding from their behavior if they're happy with what you're playing and responding to that quickly enough, I suppose, in real time um, to keep everything on course and just keep people happy. So you're building energy, you're building a vibe, and that vibe is dictated by the people. So the people, it's like the democracy of music, you know, if enough people are, are dancing, you know you're doing a good job. If they're not, then you've got to switch it up, change it up. So um, a lot of the times I'd say DJs let their egos get in the way and say, right, I've got these tunes, you need to hear them. But if those people in the room don't want to hear them, those songs or they're not really into it, then you have to have the ability to, you know, go off piece, so to speak, and quickly find what they'd like to listen to and keep the party going um it's a bit like that kind of jazzy jeff he always talks about the best djs are the ones not who can like dj for an hour on one genre but who can rock the party you know right. all night long yeah 
Well, speaking of rocking a party, what's the story behind supporting Jay-Z and Beyonce at the Principality? That was wild. Um, so, Jay-Z and Beyonce, I was doing my DJ school from Catapult Records at the time, and the Cardiff show was the first show on their entire world tour, so it was massive, massive show because they had this new production that had never been seen before um and for the support the tour manager phoned up catapult Records and say who do you know locally who'd be a good support dj and the guys at catapult obviously recommended myself because i'd done uh tours of gold and chain i've done arenas i've done festivals um i'm you know, we, we've talked about, you know, pleasing the crowd and making sure they're happy and it's not, you know, your narcissistic approach to music. <laughs> so, um, and also like being, being the warm up guy as well for a multitude of artists that there, there is an art form in, um, I warmed up for Ice Cube once and I remember, yeah, that was sick. And obviously you don't play nwa records ice cube records you you just keep it bubbling you play classics but you it's very simple but you'd be surprised how many djs when they support big artists will just do a tribute set to that <laughs> artist before they come on and play all their big hits and ruin you know the big moment for for the for the main act so right. i've been fortunate enough to have yeah you know i've played leeds festival reading festival supported gold looking chain ice cube whoever um so i got recommended to their management and i got this phone call which was quite surreal saying yeah this is a uh, jay-z and beyonce's tour management um would you like to come and do the support act i was like yeah that'd be great of course you know i was like is this is this an actual conversation I'm <laughs> is this real right <laughs> um, right is this real just... yeah and i in, in my mind i was like okay this is this is too good. This is like, this is it. I was trying to think what is a bigger hip hop show than this? This is like the biggest, I think it, yeah, it's the biggest hip hop tour of all time. I mean, Surely. you could say like maybe Dr. Dre's up in smoke tour. That was pretty massive at the time. But from a commercial perspective, Jay-Z and Beyonce are huge. Right. So I didn't think I, 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 I always prepare for like the worst case scenarios. All right. This isn't <laughs> going to happen until I'm in that stadium you know playing the music right they're going to phone me or, or say this is off or you know we don't need you anymore so yeah that's that was literally it was just um i wouldn't say it was luck because you make your own luck you know by your connections and the yeah. work you do over your life you know and that, that's why you get recommended for things um so yeah that was that was how i got recommended for that so because it was the first day of the world tour which it sounds pretty crazy being in cardiff but you know the principality stadium is enormous um they were rehearsing right up until the doors opened so the doors were at seven and their rehearsals were right up until about five to seven and i was there from four o'clock just ready to kind of you know plug the decks in have a nice little sound check Get, get used to the acoustics because it was absolutely enormous, you know, 50,000 people in the stadium. 
Um, and there was none of that. So it's like, right, they finished rehearsing. We're opening doors in five minutes. Are you ready? I was like, I'm going to have to be ready. But <laughs> obviously, it's like, it's the biggest gig of my life. And luckily, I've got a wealth of experience of working, especially, you know, with like all the kind of tech people and just trying to be professional. Um, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, did, did, did you, you know, hang out with Jay-Z and Beyonce? And at that kind of, at that level of gig, you have to not be like the fanboy, you know, you've got to go in and be clinical, um, you know, show all the kind of tech guys, sound engineers that you're, you know, professional, you know what you're doing, get set up in record time um, and yeah, just start playing music. So I presumed that it would be me and then someone like a, uh, like a Stormzy or someone like that would be on after me and then it would be Jay-Z and Beyonce. Sure. But it was literally me. I did my set for, I don't know, an hour and a half. And then it was Jay-Z. That was it? That was wow. it. It was wild. Yeah, it was wild. Um, I've never played in front of so many people. And the speakers, was, I remember this distinctly because I didn't have a chance to sound check. I didn't have any monitors. So I was monitoring from the, the main speakers. And they were like a football pitch's distance away from me. So I couldn't hear what I was doing. So I was literally just winging it on Serato and just using kind of memory of tunes. Okay, I know these work together. I'll put these together. This will work. This will work. Um, so technically, it was probably not the best set of my life. However, um, you know, wealth of experience of doing those kind of things uh, maybe accumulated apex in that that moment in time. So... So much of your passion for hip hop until that moment was you training and preparing for this moment in time. What was the reaction to this set? Uh, from the public? Yeah. Yeah, pe people, people, people are loving it. So obviously you have to play a slightly more commercial set. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, yeah, the, feed, the feedback was awesome. Um, what can I say? People are having a great time. Um, mm. And setting the tone for something like that as well, because you don't want people to be too up. You need them to have enough energy so that when the main act comes on, they're ready to go. So if you've been playing, I don't know, Fat Man Scoop or whatever, <laughs> or Jump Around, you know, that, people that's never not what play you play. those records. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, I can't can't stand that record. Um, but you, you, you know, it's that 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 would be the wrong thing to do it's it's, it's yeah. understanding that you've got to build the energy enough that people are starting to groove get into it you know getting excited for the main act and again it's like we discussed before it's it's not about you it's 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 about the people um and just it's it's very easy to play just big slammers bangers one after the other keeping a kind of a level that, that people are just about to get ready to party and dance keeping that going um that i would say that there's more nuance and detail to that i'm, I'm making it sound like it's a super <laughs> super complicated art where i just press play on other people's records <laughs> there, there's also a sense of scale as well um the it could be quite overwhelming for some people um because you are literally in the middle of the stadium in front of fifty thousand people and that that 
can get the better of you, you can be like, right, I'm just going to default to the bangers because mm. obviously people are there, but they're so far away from you. You don't get that like intrinsic feedback that you do from an intimate club. Um, so that, that, that was quite a difficult thing to navigate. Um, you know, if you've got like people 10 feet away from you, you know, you're doing a good job, but trying to make sure that the people at the front, the middle, the back, they're all having a good time. And when the back of the room is a football pitch length of people away um yeah fast forward and it's another turning point for you when you become pirate studios lead tutor yeah so i've always um people have always been very generous to me as i was coming up right so optimus prime guys gave me lots of their time um i learned a lot from like hanging out at the SFDB studios. So it's amazing to be able to give back to people. Like when I was learning, if, if, if I could have bypassed certain stages or not bypassed, but accelerated or just been pointed in the right direction, maybe I would have kind of got ahead further or made better decisions and having the opportunity to, you know, teach DJing um, to people is, is amazing. Um, so yeah Pirate Studios is for those who don't know it's a, like a it's a worldwide brand I think of studios and again the recommendation I think came from Catapult Records because I'd done the DJ school there and what year is I this? Was, oh god this is probably 2017 or 2018 so okay. they built the studios in Cardiff and it's a multi-function studios for DJs, bands whatever music you want to do, you can go and hire a space. And they were, um, people could buy uh, a session with a DJ tutor and that DJ tutor was me. And I would be teaching people from all backgrounds, not just hip hop, you know, drum and bass, house, whatever they wanted to learn, but getting people from literally nothing up to a point whereby they can kind of take it themselves in their own direction and you know formulate their own style so yeah it's it was really cool to be able to engage with people at that level and teach and um again just just remembering some of the things that the mistakes i had made um and helping people kind of navigate those in a constructive way that um is maybe slightly less stressful you still got to do the work there's no there's no um magic ticket to being good at djing but i think having a certain teaching style that can get you on the right path and get people understanding that you've got to find your own style as well that that is quite powerful yeah what was the work for you back then what was the typical session like for you teaching somebody um I'll give you an example. So I had this one guy come to me who, um, he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but he loved, he loved drum and bass. And that, that was like one of the most challenging things I've ever done. So he came to me and, he, and I was like, what, what, you know, what, what, what are you into? Oh, I love drum and bass. So I was like, okay, let's find some music. So I spend maybe the first 20 minutes with someone just going through music and finding the songs they like um, and recognize. So it's easier to learn if you 
know what you're listening to, right? If you're trying to mix records that you have no idea what they are, the learning curve will be really slow. So we would find, you know, his favorite songs, put them on the decks. And then uh, rather than overwhelm people with the technicalities of, right, you know, this does this on the mixer, this does this on the turntable or the CD deck, I would literally just get people in at the deep end, just getting that tangible feedback of what it's like to press play, hear the music playing, press stop, operate the crossfader, and literally just go from there and make as many mistakes as possible. And then we can kind of formulate a plan to becoming better. Yeah. So going back to this chap with the mental health issues, it was, he is a great example because in six to eight weeks, I had him mixing on his own for someone who had no confidence. Um, it gave him a an avenue to like express himself and something to look forward to in his week, right? Mm-hmm. It gave him structure. And for someone who wasn't very disciplined, he had to become disciplined and, you know, do his homework, <laughs> practice. Yeah, so experiences like that are quite humbling, I'd say. Um, cause Pete, they're people who are generally, they're forthcoming and, you know, they're super vulnerable, right? So they, um, they want to learn, um, and they're, what, what am I trying to say? Um, like if, if I thought it was difficult when I was learning to DJ, imagine being someone, you know, if you're like disabled or, you know, you've got mental health problems, what have you. So the confidence thing, trying to build confidence with people who haven't had the best hand in life. That that was that was an amazing opportunity. Yeah. It really speaks to the inclusion you were talking about earlier when you were welcomed into the scene, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Um that's, there's a lot to be said for that. Um again, I I keep kind of reiterating it, but like yeah, the the, the scene in South Wales is I say the music scene in general is, is very welcoming and um, there's a lot of like-minded people, um, you know, people have divisions and beef or whatever, but really people are just there, you know, to help each other and yeah, just help, help each other along. It's like, you're on the same path. Yeah. Okay. How can I help you? You know, or what, what, what can we do? Um, so yeah, those, um, those kind of lessons, like yeah, moral lessons learned at the kind of beginning definitely translate across into teaching and being able to give something back to um yeah, the local community, I suppose. What was it that led you to teach in Charlotte Church? That is <laughs> that's such a wild card, isn't it? Um so random. Like it is. It's again, it was I have to give massive props to the guys at Catapult Records. Simon and Lucy, because they, they, they gave me a lot of opportunities or um, put me in front of people, you know, like recommended me to the Jay-Z and Beyonce guys. Um, some of the festivals I did when Nokia was a big mobile phone company, they came to Cat Hot Records and said, you know, who do you know who can DJ for us? So subsequently, Charlotte Church wanted to learn to DJ. Her PA management went to Catapult and said, who do you know who can teach Charlotte how to DJ? So I was recommended. 
and again it was one of these things i was like this is this probably won't happen um so we provisionally booked a date in i think we did the, we did the lessons in undertone which was on the club beneath 10 feet tall oh yeah and um just so that she could have an experience of like what it was like to dj on a club system from the off from you know from the offset um so yeah that was that's how it came about it was a, a recommendation and i kind of put the date in the diary and i heard nothing back from it and i was like oh it's one of those ones whereby she's probably too busy you know doing charlotte church things uh, being a celebrity <laughs> and then i get this call <laughs> it's, it, it was it was her manager like are, are you coming i was like to what it's like charlotte's down at the venue are you ready wow. so i had to i had to just leg it <laughs> straight in the car and just get down there and um it, it is a random well, why would charlotte church want to learn to dj and um i think the plan for her interestingly she's a, a real vinyl head um really i was yeah i i was prepared to teach her on digital medium so serato or cdjs and she was like i love vinyl she's got quite a big vinyl collection i was like okay cool so i, I packed some records uh, some instrumental hip-hop and some drum and bass bits and we were mixing on vinyl in the first lesson we did eight eight hours of lessons and the plan was for her to build a set so that she could go out as charlotte church the dj you know if, if you're a celebrity you can use that as leverage to kind of yeah. get work why not um yeah and in in the first hour i had a mixing beat matching drum and bass records um wow so yeah she, she was she was really good uh but she's got a musical ear she, she understands timing um yeah so we, we did a block of eight hours and then obviously she's a busy woman and i think other things took over but for the time we had as uh lessons it was yeah it was really cool she was she learned fast she listened and she could mix that's that simple and she she had i remember we did a lesson at her house and just looking for you know she's into like like dilla and you know proper like hip-hop hip-hop right wow so that's crazy yeah, really good taste but then she she's um her studio have worked with um like shay and jamal um so yeah she's 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 got she's got a good head from for music yeah respect yeah. to charlotte church for sure for sure how do you feel <laughs> about celebrity djs do you have any opinions on celebrity djs you don't you don't want to know my opinions um, oh i do i do <laughs> No, it, it, so, oh man, my, my opinions on like DJing as a whole and because um, a lot of what we've talked about is like the rite of passage, okay, and like earning your kind of, earning your stripes and it is it is disheartening, you know, when you've done all the work to see people who can literally just bypass you. Take um, shortcuts. Take shortcuts, yeah. So it, DJing is seen as, I'd say... It's one of those things you can bolt on to if you, if you are of a certain celebrity status are. Uh, do you want to do the such and such from whatever band DJ set, you know? Um, so I'm kind of part of the problem and the solution in the fact that I've kind of taught people 
to do that but mm. unfortunately that that that's where the market is it's it's you know you might have you know a member of the libertines doing a dj set right they're not djs and they they're just pressing play and pause and getting on the mic and hyping people up but if that's what the crowd want to see if it's their fans then you know maybe it's their it's a snapshot of the kind of their musical tastes and what they like so you you can look at it in like negative ways or you can kind of say well you know it, they're playing to their fan base and it's a way for them to do shows at a cheaper rate you know to smaller venues perhaps and the fans get to see their you know band member celebrity um i don't know jamie oliver dj set can you imagine <laughs> I don't want to imagine Hugh Fernley Whittingstall DJ set or, Oh man um, Be- Ben Fogel DJ set um, it, it makes I, I can um, So a lot of people Again will say well It frustrates me That you know Highly skilled DJ I've, I've done I've ticked many boxes Yet to get to you've got to have that platform of fame to be able to get up there and people are just they're making the best of what they they have got um you know it's like it's like people who come off celebrity love island you know yeah they're just they're squeezing as much money as they can out of like the the fame that they've got so i, I understand why they do it you know uh if, if you're someone from a musical background i think it it makes more sense um you know you understand music you might play some of your own tunes in your dj set um so it has yeah it, the problem it has watered down what a dj is i think it's 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 because of the technology available to people now like you, like we said it's you can just bypass the hard work and do a pretty reasonable job to a bunch of people who are your fan base Uh, so a quick story, a friend of mine, I used to work for Sennheiser headphones and a friend of mine was their like A&R kind of guy who had loads of celebrity contacts. And the plan was for him to feed me people coming off of like celebrity love Island, whatever these, I don't know what these TV shows are, but people would come to me that do a two week crash course and build an hour DJ set so they could go out as matey from the only way is Essex. Right. DJ set right. um, and obviously the more people doing that it is it's a double-edged sword you know I'm, I'm making money from that but is it is it infringing on kind of the opportunities for you know up-and-coming DJs or is it in like a little bubble of its own you know celebrity bubble world of its own that's can you separate um, the two it, you, it's not yeah can you separate the two in your mind so um I, I I don't know if it's like a cardinal sin. It's it's not you know there are worse there are worse things in the world. But if if I can, you know, be part of, I I'd always teach people to be good. So for example, with Charlotte Church, I got her to a point where she could actually mix. So I have like a there's a threshold of of skill that has to be achieved before. Right you know someone gets let loose right so and i'd also say that if if someone was obnoxious and awful then 
it doesn't matter how, how much money you you know it's it's, it's just not going to work right so yeah but then you know you see like your kind of paris hilton dj sets is that a good thing i don't know um yeah but it, it is the age of technology has allowed this so like when it was pure vinyl less people would be able to do that as celebrities you know because the, the skill set the bar was so high um technology Tech changed has allowed it. people right yeah right it's open it's open the doors um also i mean i can go off i can quickly tell you the best analogy i have for it is technology is amazing because it means i don't have to carry records around bags and bags of records it's incredible and it used to be that like um it was like the kind of like the nerds and the geeks you know who were into record collecting and just spending hours in their bedroom scratching and mixing and learning the craft right those are the ones who would succeed but because the technology is so good now the guys with the personalities the big personalities you know like the sports jocks in school you know <laughs> it's those guys who are like hey i i can i can be like the sports jock dj right and um right so those guys can succeed where before it was only like the the nerds and like the bedroom dorks who would you know like myself just practice 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 mix 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 the pers- personality was important but it wasn't it wasn't the main thing but it's now it's like because djing is super accessible you can bolting on top of that you know personality on top of that celebrity um yeah maybe it's become a bit too throw away so the other factors override like someone being technically amazing but you know if they can get on the mic and just you know hype everybody up that's more important than the craft maybe hello this is parker um and my memory of killer tomato was of this young gun coming up behind me that's how i felt i was like oh no is like you had i was sandwiched between like i don't know like optimus prime and kazu was up there and then i was coming up the rear and then you had like killer tomato came on the scene and he was he had the same what i liked what i i saw a little bit of myself in him in that he had mad focus on on like wanting to be an incredible scratch dj and do the whole dmc thing um and again a very i think he came at the end of my time in cardiff but i just remember being scared of him like you know when younger people come up and you're like oh no i'm gonna have i'm gonna have to move on because he's like he's taken it to another level he had that he he was like he was fierce on the cut it was it was like aggressive on the cut and obviously then he became a massive bodybuilder which went which kind of like added to his strength on his cuts it was like incredible but yeah he was i i really rated him he was a really good uh scratch dj and i think he's still in cardiff isn't he i, I haven't seen him for years but yeah he was dope man i've got to ask you about this cup of tea you had with westwood how does that happen how does that come about oh man the cup of tea <laughs> that was that's that's so random i totally thought about it so I'm going to sound super cynical, but like the BBC does this thing whereby they invite people from outside of London, the regions, you know, you know, from Wales, from up north, um, from the, yeah, the places that are not London, 
to come up and showcase what they do. So it was me and MetaBeats. Shay came from from Wales, and we were kind of put in in this room with all these other people from across the country who were, you know, like similar level, had done some things, had not like fully broken through. Um, sure. And you know, Westwood was kind of like <laughs> wheeled in, and we were all given like a cup of tea, and you know, he kind of went around the room and like we all kind of told him his story, and um, you know, took lots of pictures of us hanging out at Westwood and whatnot, and then then we went home. Um, so I was slightly disenfranchised by the whole like the sincerity of the experience i thought it was more of like a box ticking exercise of let's get people up from yeah from the from from the provinces to the big city and you know we can help these guys on their career um (laughs) you know i i (laughs) I, you know what westwood's like he's um you either love him or you hate him don't you um you know he kept referring to meta beats just meta Meta, yo, Meta, tell me, tell me about your album, Meta. <laughs> Love it. Oh, it's Meta beat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it it was it was a learning experience. It was it was disheartening to go up there, and we saw the process of how like Radio One playlist all their music that's going to be on the A list for the radio, and it's literally three people in a room who choose right. This song's going to be successful. This song's going to be successful. And I was naive at the time and I thought, you know, things organically work their way up to the top. And I kind of saw this process that was just, it was uh, Radio 1 success by committee. Um, and I found that disheartening. Maybe I was just naive and young. But um, so, yeah, that, that was the cup of tea with Westwood. Um, yeah, that, that's, that was, it was, it was kind of them to invite me up there. And it was cool to see Radio 1, you know, functioning as it does however i thought the the systems in place were not i I couldn't see how people made it you know through to the top i was like how on earth do you you manage to to win this game it's a rigged game so yeah maybe maybe i was um optimistic perhaps do you still feel that way there is a rigged game uh in music yeah yeah i i think currently it's the best time in history to if you're an independent artist to be successful so i'll go down this rabbit hole just quickly (laughs) so before you have gatekeepers at every stage so at radio one there's a group of people who decide whether or not you can go on the radio um maybe you have people at the record label who decide if you can have a record deal um people on on um a and r type people you know who decide whether or not you know your demo is good enough so now with the internet you can just bypass all the gatekeepers and go direct to your fan base you know you can use um cd baby one of you know one of the publishers you can just upload your music to the internet you can be on spotify in like two weeks and you can go straight to the people who want to listen to your music which is amazing Mm. um so i i think 
it's the best time in in history as a as an artist to whatever music you make to connect with your fan base directly um you know and, and people see spotify and all these streaming platforms as like huge negative because they don't pay very much per stream but i think people don't look at the bigger picture it's like your music if it if it does go it can be out in front of people in africa in america in asia mm. like think of the alternative how would you get your music to someone say someone in south africa listened to the song that you'd written you'd have to put it on a cd you know in the old days and literally by yeah. hand give it to them or you'd have to speak to like a radio plugger and say hey can you play my my stuff from south african radio now the algorithms are so powerful on these platforms that yes they don't pay very much but the reach if you if you go big or if you know you find your fan base is is instant and it's um it's direct to the to the listener so there's no one in between telling you you can't you can't or you can do this song or what or not um so yeah i i think the answer to the question is that it's an amazing time to to be a musician if if you kind of accept the the rules of the game if that makes sense absolutely it's a blessing if you're able to tap into what you're talking about yes totally but equally i i can see how everybody is making music and it is also you know there's a lot of people but the optimist in me says that good music will always you know rise to the top so yeah there's never been a better time to make music i think and it's all dependent how you see through that lens yourself totally totally um and you know so using social media platforms instagram you know tiktok is a to some it's a modern hellscape but again you can you can be in, in front of people who would never you know come to your local town or listen to you um in in an instant so that's pretty powerful when you look at your contributions so far what strikes you the most hopefully like i've i've contributed like a level of integrity and professionalism um and ho hopefully like just just been an example for other people to say you know you if you if you try and you work hard you you can achieve great things so if whether or not that's with like the teaching or like you know doing dj battles you know working with other artists you know the jay-z and beyonce thing i take that in my stride and people often remind me that that's not a normal thing you know that doesn't come around very often so hopefully yeah the contribution is along the lines of you you can if you work hard enough you you can you can achieve you know good things um i i'd like to get to a point whereby with djing in particular that i can pick and choose the dj sets i want to do um like the, this obviously music changes the scenes change um i'd like to be at a point where i can just have enough kind of work like recording cuts of people studio work that i could not take a step back but just choose the, the really fun ones the cool gigs so whether or not that's possible i don't know um you know i'm, I'm still fortunate enough to be doing gigs with a gold looking chain um 
so yeah it's you, you never know what's around the corner so it's just you just keep plugging away and just things often just kind of fall fall in your lap sometimes so you just the main thing i think is just to stay busy keep doing stuff um yeah and see just see what comes comes your way <laughs>